If you like the Live Wild podcast and enjoy hunting-related apparel, I've got you covered. I just launched some great t-shirts, hats, and sweatshirts under my own Live Wild brand. You can find them now on my website, remywarren.com. I just want to say thanks again, everyone, for all the support, and I really hope you enjoy these designs as much as I do. Who knows? Maybe you'll head over to my website and find your next lucky hat. I'm Remy Warren, and I've lived my life in the wild. As a professional guide and hunter, I've spent thousands of days perfecting my craft. I want to give that knowledge to you. In this podcast, we relive some of my past adventures as I give you practical hunting tips to make you more successful. Whether you're just getting started or a lifelong hunter, this podcast will bring you along on the hunt and teach you how to live wild. This podcast is brought to you by Mountain Tough and Yeti. A lot of the tactics I talk about here require you to be in top physical shape. So I partnered with Mountain Tough to help get you ready for the mountain. With their science-based hunter-specific training app, you'll get in shape and mentally tough, able to tackle any hunt. Because we really believe this will help you be more successful, as a listener to this podcast, we're giving you six free weeks to get you started. Just use code LIVEWILD. It's no secret Yeti has some of the best and most durable gear out there. But when it came to hydration, they previously didn't have a great backcountry solution. Well, that all changed with their new Yonder water bottle. My Yonder covered the backcountry all across the West last season while chasing mule deer, elk, caribou, and more. It's about 50% lighter than their insulated Rambler, but still has that Yeti toughness. The best part is they've now got them in four different sizes, so you can pack the bottle perfectly fit for your hunt. To top it off, there's also great options for customization. You can check them out now at yeti.com. Welcome back, everyone, to the Live Wild podcast. I'm really excited this week because we're going to talk about spot and stock bow hunting mule deer, specifically making a play on a bedded deer. Now, I recently ran some numbers of all the deer I've taken and guided bow hunters to, and over the years, I learned that 54% were taken through stocking them while they're in their beds. This is because when a deer's bedded, you have more time to get the wind right, wait for the thermals to pick up and stabilize, and you also benefit by them not moving as much. You might be able to plan your stock better, block their eye, and get in close, get into position unseen. With over half the deer I've taken using this hunt style, it's a tested tactic. One of the things that I like to do with this podcast is give you the best tips for success. So this week, I'm joined by my good friend, Nate Simmons. He's just one of those guys that constantly gets it done. I really think it's because he takes a very meticulous approach to the stock and stock planning. Every year, Nate takes great bucks on film for Western Hunter TV, which isn't an easy thing to do. He hunts hard and is one of those guys that I think everyone can learn from. So this week, Nate and I are going to sit down and talk strategy for stocking bedded mule deer. But first, I want to hear the story of his high country mule deer hunt in Wyoming. Well, thanks for having me on, Remy. Um, yeah, so uh, this story is actually, it's from a hunt. I think it was in 2019. Um, it was uh, one that we filmed for Western Hunter. It was titled High and Dry in Season 8. And it was... Uh, and a new area for me, I'd went down a few days before the season started uh, to do some scouting before Randy showed up on uh, August 31st to hike in with me for opening day. So I showed up a little early and uh, things were just kind of blowing up quickly. The, the first area I went into uh, had a whole bunch of domestic sheep. So I had to make some adjustments, I ended up finding this little pocket 
um, I think it was on the evening of the 30th, located some shooter bucks, uh, got up the next morning, relocated some of those bucks again, but not all of them. But I knew it was a good enough situation. There was no other hunters around that I packed out, met up with Randy. We came back in uh, for opening. We were we slept up there and woke up there on opening morning. And on opening morning, I ended up spotting a shooter buck and it bedded in a great spot. And I was like super stoked, you know, opening day, like everything's just working perfect. It's like the perfect type of weather. You know, it's, uh, there's not a cloud in the sky. It's going to get warm. So the thermals should be super consistent. And I'm just thinking this is absolutely perfect. But what I wasn't able to do, which is what I prefer to do was I wasn't able to observe these bucks for several days. So I had no sort of bearing on their pattern. Like I didn't know like what time if they bedded, like typically if they bed in the morning, like when they do, they'll get up at some point during the day, whether it's, you know, one o'clock, three o'clock, whatever, they're going to get up and feed for a little while. And I didn't have any sort of that information. You know, I just hadn't found these bucks early enough. So it was about 1030 in the morning, the bucks had bedded in what it looked like a pretty decent spot uh, that they would be there for a while. And I, my glassing spot was maybe, I don't know, 30 yards from where our camp was. So after I bedded them, I went back to camp with Randy, kind of like uh, reloaded our packs, just got everything ready. And we were there for 10 minutes. And before we started actually hiking on the stock, I just thought, I'm going to throw my binos up one more time, just make sure they're there and they're gone. And I don't know, have any idea where they went. Like they could have went, they could have went and rebedded 30 yards from where they were and they might have been in a perfect spot, but I had no idea where they went. All I know is they had moved. And so, what I, I learned a lesson that I knew better and I'd learned lots of times before, but like, I just didn't wait long enough, you know, like those bucks, they do that all the time where they just bed and it's a false bed, you know, they're just not, they're not settled for the day. So the, the rest of that day, I never, I never laid eyes on a shooter buck and I never saw that, that particular shooter the rest of the day. The next morning we wake up, spot the buck again, except this time I'm like, okay, I'm not making that same mistake again. Uh, bed the buck. And then I waited until it was probably 1130 or something. I, I made sure, and they did, they, they bedded and then rebedded. They would get up and I made sure I'd wait until it was good and hot. And I was confident at this point, they're not going anywhere. So at that point I planned my stock. And again, it was ideal conditions, you know, got above them, you know, worked down. It was, they were bedded like in basically in the same spot they were the day before, which was, which was a pretty ideal spot, just right below a lip. And, uh, and was able to time it out to where I got over there, like right before the buck got up to ended up, he, I don't think he got up to feed, but he just got up to stretch, which was perfect, you know? So I didn't have to sit there baking in the sun for four hours. It was like basically the ideal situation. You know, I got in position. I didn't have to wait and worry that the, the, the wind was going to swirl at some point And I didn't have to stand in an uncomfortable position for hour. I mean, it was basically textbook and I just feel like it was a gift because that deer basically did the exact same thing two days in a row, which almost even unpressured deer, I feel like they almost never do the exact same thing. They might stay in the same hillside, but he bedded almost in the exact same spot. So, uh, you know, like it was a, a break that went my way and, uh, you know, a lesson I hope that I don't have to learn again as far as, you know, just, not being impatient, you know, it's like just because yeah. they bed in the perfect spot doesn't mean it's time to go. Oh, I know. I don't know how many times that's happened where you, you see them and you, I got to get over there now. And then during the stock or something, 
they move and you just, you blew a really good chance because you weren't patient enough to get that consistent bed. And that's, uh, that's an awesome story. And I'm glad it worked out because how many times do you not, does it not work out the same way twice? You know, you just you know think I think, it's yeah, I, I think it was the following two years in a row I hunted in, in, uh, that I hunted that exact spot plus th- that kind of region. And, uh, and ended up not killing a deer almost three years in a row. I ended up killing one last year, but like I was, I was getting ready to start a, a streak, <laughs> you know, of not killing them. So yeah, it's like any year that I go on a high country mule deer hunt, um, you know, especially over there in Western Wyoming, like where I know I'm going to see bucks, uh, you know, it's such a variable, like on elk hunts, I kind of, I feel like I average five day hunts. That's kind of an average, you know, and on deer, it's like, man, I, I don't know what the average is. It's like, it, it could be over with on the first morning or you could be 12 days deep and never have knocked an arrow. You know, it's just so wildly variable, variable. For sure. Well, I think it's, uh, you brought up a lot of good points and I definitely want to, uh, dive in. I think we should dive into some of the tips and tactics of when you do spot a deer, what, what's the procedures that you go through? What are the things that you're looking for? And then when you move in, you know, that entire process, because I think that, you know, one of the things that I recently did, I, I just took compiled like stats from all the deer that I've taken just to see if there's a certain tactic that stood out. And uh, I think that the one that was the most consistent was finding a deer, putting it to bed, sneaking in and shooting that buck over mm-hmm. half of the deer that I've killed or guided people to have been that way. Then I think the other big, for me, big portion would be almost something similar, but in an ambush tactic where it's like you see one and you just almost that more like get lucky or you've watched them long enough where you got this pattern and you, you kind of cut them off. But I think that of the deer that I've taken, putting a deer to bed, sneaking in is definitely the most successful single tactic. Would you say that it's the same for you? Is that like your preferred method of, of hunting? Oh, no, and I, I am trying to work on being a little more open-minded and versatile. Like that's one thing I've always admired about you is you are very open-minded, you know, and I've had the privilege to go on hunts with you and like you are very adaptable and I'm trying to be more so, but no, for me, it's like when it comes to early season mule deer, it's probably 90% let you bet them. And like, I'm just not open-minded enough, Yeah, <laughs> but it does work. I mean, it's like the reason I stick to it is because it works like when you can find the right situation, but sometimes I feel like I, I pass up other opportunities because I'm like, no, 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 that's not right. Like I want a bed one and I want the thermals to be right. And so I I do think that there's uh, something to be said for just being adaptable. Um, but certainly the reason, you know, I'm looking for this situation is because when you find it, you find a buck bedded in a good spot, you know, you've got it in the middle of the day where the thermals are going to be consistent. Um, it's a, you know, it's super deadly and effective. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I've kind of always said is sometimes you aren't necessarily just looking for a deer, but you're looking, I always say like, I just need one buck to do something stupid. I just need that one deer to do like fall into that pattern of he does this, he beds. I I've got that good approach. And when all those things line up, it's a very high likelihood that you're going to kill that buck. Generally when I stalk a mule deer, I mean, yeah, like things happen on stocks, but for the most part, I think my stock to kill ratio is pretty high because when you wait for that right opportunity, he did something stupid generally. And it gives you an advantage over him having the advantage because the mule deer, they like to have that advantage. It's hard to find a deer that, that doesn't give up that, 
whatever that wind at their back, that loud approach. Like, but when all those things work out to, in unison, highly successful stock. Absolutely, and you got to look for it. Like, I mean, I've I've had over the years a lot of people come up to me and say. I can never find deer bedded below a cliff like you. How do you always find deer that bed in these perfect spots? And it's like, you know, when it's, it's easy to think that when you watch uh, a 20 minute episode and it's like, what they didn't see was, Hey, it took me seven days to find that, you know, like, but if, if you just stick with it, um, you know, that's the key is, you know, it might take a while. They don't bed in perfect spots all the time, but when they do, yeah, it's, it's super effective. Yeah, I think let's. I, I kind of want you to walk us through your approach because uh, the one of the reasons I wanted to talk with you is because you are very dedicated to that style, and because of it, you've been very successful with it, and you've kind of learned all the the do's and don'ts. I think that that's one of the things that most people starting out they see a deer bed and it's like, ooh, I got to get over there, right? And I think that the biggest mistake new mule deer archery hunters make is they pick the wrong time to move in. Would you kind of agree with that? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I feel like, like really before any of the stalking can take place, you know, the, the, the spotting has to go well and it doesn't just end with, Hey, there's a buck and he bedded. So typically like the process that I usually go through is ideally I want to spot a buck in the morning, obviously to bed him and then give me lots of time. So I'm not having a rushed stock. And I like those midday thermals, uh, you know, when they're, when they're the most consistent. So typically try to spot a buck in the morning. And then it gets real tricky at that point because at once I've spotted a buck that I'm interested in shooting, I have to stay like glued on him. I cannot take my eyes off of him. And this can go on for three, four, sometimes five hours, just depending on the conditions. So it can get real, uh, it can get difficult physically and mentally just sitting in an, like felt like a, a you know, a comfortable position, you know, on a, uh, on a glassing pad on a rock for the first hour and a half, but you know, four hours into it, like you just want a break, but you yeah. got to, I mean, cause if you take your eyes off him for 30 seconds and he goes around, you know, some bushes when you're not paying attention to beds and you know, he's bedded somewhere over there, but you don't know exactly where, like your odds just went down substantially. So I stay glued on that buck, but where it's real tricky is at the same time that I'm staying glued on him. I'm also scanning that entire hillside, that mountainside or wherever he's at that basin for other deer, elk, whatever it might be. And so I'm trying to pick my spots of like, okay, that deer's kind of he, the buck that I'm after is feeding through an opening. And I think it's going to take him probably, you know, a minute or something to get through there. So I feel like I can, I can risk taking my eyes off him and I'll start scanning with my binoculars. And I'm trying to keep track of anything else that might be on that hill. And every time I take my eyes off my buck, I run the risk of losing it, but I can't run the risk of just staying tunnel vision on him and not have having anything else accounted for because like you're never going to see everything, but I do my very best, especially when I'm trying to anticipate the stalking route. Like as, as I'm watching this buck, I'm trying to anticipate where he might bed and what my stalking path might be and trying to account for anything that might be in my path because I feel like that's what's wrecked more stocks for me than, than even the wind changing directions is blowing other animals that I didn't know were there. So that's the first part of it is not just bedding him in a good spot, but keeping up, making sure that you actually see where he beds and then account for every other animal. And then what this kind of ties into my story at the beginning is just because they bed in a, in a good spot and everything else seems to have bedded, 
you know, not to just go taking off, you know, running over there because a lot of times they do, uh, it's just kind of a false bed. And the more you deer hunt, the more, the more I deer hunt anyway, the more I'm, I feel like I'm able to kind of judge that just based off of where they bedded their body language, what time it is in the morning and just kind of reading, okay, the sun's going to come up. He's, he's, his shade's going to run out in an hour. So he's clearly going to move in an hour. And, you know, that's important to be able to judge that if you haven't been able to sit up there for several days and kind of get a pattern. Like that's the ideal scenario is when you, okay, I know this buck, he's going to, you know, false bed at eight o'clock and then he'll rebed at nine 30 and he'll stay there. And then he, I know he'll get up and feed at one 30 and he'll feed for, you know, an hour or whatever, like that's ideal. But so, that, so that's kind of like where I would start, like is before I'm even thinking about the stocking is just trying to account for, not take my eyes off him and account for everything else. Do you agree with that? I mean, is that kind of, yeah, is that your, your, that's a hundred percent my same game plan. And that's the thing. Like, I think I, I talk about a lot is really anticipating what that deer is going to do. Cause a lot of the deer you might run into, and that's like the first time or whatever. And you go, okay, what's the sun doing? Where's, how long is he going to keep that shade? Generally when I, and I, I think that the way that most people blow a, a good opportunity is just like you say, where they, that first bed or sometimes maybe a, an initial bed where they're feeding, they sit down, then they go off to this like tree and it's shaded, but it's early enough in the morning where the thermals aren't stabilized and, that sun's going to move and within 45 minutes, maybe he's going to be hot again and shake it off and move. And then, you know, you're making a play at that point. It might look real good, but it, it probably isn't your best option. Just being patient and, and planning it out. And then, like you said too, the, the deer that you don't see are the ones that are going to blow it. Does like a doe bedded above a buck on your stocking route is the worst thing that can happen because when I stalk a deer, I want him to never know I'm there. I want that arrow to hit him and him be like, what was that? I didn't know that anything was coming. Just, you know, blowing out an elk one ridge over they they, they key into that. I feel like, and they also, even if it's not right where they're at, like directly blowing them out, they're on edge of thinking, Oh, there's something around here. And I think that they pay more attention. And it's a lot harder to sneak in than on a deer that doesn't feel like there's any threats around. Yeah. Um, yeah, I totally agree. And then I guess before I go on a stock too, I'm kind of assessing just the, I'm trying to read the situation. Like if I, if I'm in like a, a leftover or not that there, I don't even know if those exist anymore in Nevada, but I used to be able to draw tags in Nevada, like on the second drawing, because there were like tags that nobody wanted, which are usually tough hunts. And if I was in one of those type areas, like if any halfway decent buck bedded, I didn't really care if it was an ideal scenario or not. I would just go, you know, it was a volume thing, you know, cause I, I wasn't looking for a giant, but if I am in an area that it's got quality deer, older age class bucks, and there's not a ton of hunting pressure. And I feel like I can be a little more selective. I'm not going to go just because I got a, a shooter buck bedded in a stockable spot. Doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to go. If I feel like I've got the area to myself, and I feel like there's better places on that mountainside or in that basin that that buck could bed. And he's not in a great situation and it's early in my hunt. Sometimes I'll just be patient and not go and just wait. But, you know, I've done that before and I've never seen that buck before. So it's definitely a risk. But yeah, sometimes I'll definitely do that, especially if it's a like a rarer, older age class buck. And I just want to wait and hope for the most ideal set of circumstances where I feel like I can 
position myself well within bow range and just wait for him, have a basically a blind stock where I don't have to make a bunch of huge like risks. So I, I do kind of factor that in as well. But on any stock, it doesn't really matter if it's, you know, an opportunity that's just kind of a an average, hey, this could go any way, or man, this this is a really high percentage one. I'm usually gonna always wait until after the sun has got up high enough that I feel like it's it's hitting most places in the canyon or in the basin to where it's really driving those thermals up. I'm gonna have the least chance that the the thermals are gonna swirl, but they but they always swirl. So what I what I like to do when possible is if I can kind of get a gauge on patterning those deer. Cause it, like if, if they bed in the morning, even if it's hot, like they're almost always, I mean, even if it's 90 degrees, a deer is almost always going to get up at some point, middle of the day or early afternoon and feed for at least a little while, just right out in the wide open, you know? So it's not like you have to wait till evening time. So what, if I can get a pattern on them, I'll try to plan my stock so that I leave with enough time to get over there and get in position about 30 minutes before they've been getting up to feed. And that way I stay over my glassing point as long as possible with a view, just in case they do like flukishly move, I can see it. I don't want to be over there, you know, on the same hillside with them where I can't observe it. So I'll observe them as long as possible and then wait and just time it out to where I can go on the stock without having to over like overheat, you know, where I can take breaks and just kind of hit shade pockets on my way. Um, just kind of at a, a leisurely clip, but just try to plan it so that I'm there 30 min minutes before. And the reason I try to do that is two reasons is one is that if you end up having to wait for three or four hours, even if you've got a perfect weather and a, and a constant thermal, like, you know, how it is, it's like the thermals like almost always swirl just enough to get you, you know? So I, I want to be over there with the least amount of time when I'm within range of that deer and you know, it also just can get super uncomfortable if you happen to sometimes like I'm standing in the sun, you know, for, and I've had to do it for five hours straight because I'm just like waiting for that deer to get up. So that's another reason I try to time it to where I can get over there 30 minutes before I anticipate him getting up. And like you said, a lot of times you don't know they're there. Like even like last year, I scouted for two weeks, not consecutively, but cumulatively over the summer. I scouted for two weeks prior to the season. And on opening day, I still didn't have a good plan. Like, I mean, everything that I'd kind of learned was wrecked by hunting pressure or, you know, deer had vanished on me or whatever. So, you know, a lot of times I am hunting deer that I have, I don't have a pattern on. And in that scenario, I will go off of the moon phase, the, the lunar tables. And I trust those things a lot. You know, like if it says based, you know, it calculates all this, this information off of, you know, what the moon's doing, but I have an app on my phone, but you can look up stuff, you know, online, but I just have an app. And, uh, you know, if it says, Hey, these deer, you know, are going to get up and feed at two o'clock, um, for or the deer or elk, you know, it works. I, I feel like those, those moon phase charts work most predictably in my experience for, for animals that are not in the rut. Um, so I feel like it's like a super, super valuable tool, like on an early season mule deer hut, you know, where there's no weather is predictable weather. There's no rut going on. I feel like it's just super super accurate like i mean even if it's 90 degrees and that thing if, if that app says they're going to get up at two like even if i don't have a deer spotted like i will make sure i'm not taking a nap then like that's what i'm gonna be glassing but if i don't have a pattern i'll plan my stock and i'll just trust that 
you know, because I don't want to go over there and just go, well, I'm just going to, maybe I'll sit here for six hours, you know? Um, yeah. So that, that is like kind of my last resort is I'll just go right off that if I don't have any other better information. That's a, that's actually a really good tip. And I haven't really thought about doing that. I remember I used to have that on a GPS and, you know, you look at it and go, okay. And it, it is weird how there are certain times a day, same with, that doesn't even matter the species. I find it with the spring bear hunting a lot too. We'll be out glassing and we've killed a lot of bears at 2 PM on a 90 degree day out in the middle of a burn. You're like what the heck are they makes doing? No sense. It, it yeah. makes no sense, but they just, yeah, they, I mean, animals have cycles when they feed, they've got these, what we call patterns. And those patterns do change a lot as well as this, like you said, based off weather, based off other things. I, uh, the deer I shot last year, it was in his, it was bedded in a spot where I expected him to get up shortly after I got there. And I, it was one of those where it's like, he wasn't going to get in a better position. I needed to move. And, and like you said, sometimes there's, there are those stocks where, you know, we talk about waiting, but there are those opportunities where it's like, he's in that opportunity. Now you need to take advantage of that. I've got time. The thermal's right. The wind's right. Outside of that, I don't think I'll have a, a chance. So I go over there and I was expecting him to get up within 20 or 30 minutes of when I got there. Well, probably even sooner. And cloud cover showed up and I sit there for two hours because the sun never hit him. He didn't get hot and yep. it just completely changed what that buck was going to do based off of one little thing like the weather. And that the same thing can happen when if it's cloudy, you know, you've got good cloud cover and you're watching this buck's been there forever and you go over and that those clouds are gone. You go, oh, now the sun's doing something different. So yep. there are a lot of different factors that, that play into it. And those are kind of the things that you have to observe and pay attention to. I think one of the cool things that you do is, you know, just paying attention to all those, those little details. I think so many hunters that go from being a guy that occasionally shoots a deer to a guy that consistently shoots a deer is the amount of little details that you pay attention to. I think that the, the little details are what get deer killed or get you busted. And I think like yeah. by paying attention to what the deer are doing in your area, uh, overall based off of, you know, whatever, whatever your system is, it's a, it makes a big difference in that success factor. Oh, absolutely. I do feel like with mule deer, ar archery mule deer versus archery elk, I feel like lots of times elk hunting, I just got in the right place at the right time and it kind of felt lucky. You know, you just got a bull that was, you know, at that perfect time where you threw out a cow call and he just came charging into 20 yards, you know, and he just like, it just happened. It could have happened to anybody that was there. But with deer, I feel like, uh, sure, there's been you know, a, a couple times where I'm like, yeah, I got kind of lucky, but it wasn't lucky to get to where I had to be. But I just feel like on average, there's way less luck that goes into the mule deer. There's just a lot more uh, details um, and uh, variables that you have to pay attention to. It's just, you know, you know what, does that make sense Ver oh, yeah. versus elk hunting? You know, I think that's kind of why I, I consider me personally, I know everybody's got their own thing. I love elk hunting, but I feel like taking a mature mule deer buck with a bow, especially like a high country mule deer, probably one of the most challenging things to do with a bow because it yeah. is a game where you have to do everything right. I, I mean, I'm trying to think about, there's very few times where I've gotten lucky on mule deer. It's always the opposite. Like they always have try to keep some kind of an advantage and you have to play, you really have to play that chess game with them. It's a very, it, it can be a very frustrating test. There's like you say, you know, the, there's times where, everything is right. You get in position and you feel that wind hit your neck for 0 0.01 seconds 
because the thermal whatever that you just the buck didn't get up and he blows out. I, yep. Happens hundred hundreds of times, thousands of times. Yep. Just like you know, you it's very hard to I would say get lucky with mule deer sometimes. Maybe young bucks, fork and horns. You could probably just drive around in the truck and get lucky, you know. <laughs> so I, I can remember one time that I was like, I got lucky. Like I remember I was up on this glassing spot and I was not having a good morning. I wasn't seeing anything. The sun had been up for just a little while and I just happened to look down below me and out of this pocket that I didn't have a visual on, like it just, this shooter buck appears like within bow range, like right below me. And uh, I was so caught off guard. You know, I've daydreamed, you know, hoping that would happen lots of times on tough hunts and it actually was happening. It just felt like a mirage, you know, yeah. and I was so rattled that I just went from thinking, and it was late in the hunt. I was probably 10 days deep and I was, I mean, it was like this, this was I'm not getting one on this hunt. What it felt like it went from that feeling to here's a shooter buck. Here's a gift. I was so rattled that I ended up making a terrible shot. I ended up clipping the buck, you know, in the hind quarter, got the femoral artery and he like, he went a hundred yards and died. You know I mean? It was like, that was super lucky. But at the same time I was, you know, seven miles from my pickup, you know, like that wasn't lucky. Like, you know, like I got out there, but sure. Like I needed a ton of luck on that one. So yeah, that, that was lucky. That's about the only time I can think of where I was like, yeah, I just pretty much just got lucky. That's cool. Yeah. So but, when you go from, you know, spotting the deer, you've got, let's say you've got a deer in a position where you, you feel like he's going to get up. You go, okay, now's the time to stock. I think that this is a good time to stock. You get into position. Let's talk about when you're in that strike zone, because I think that that's the part where a lot of it falls apart. Waiting isn't fun. And like you said, you're, you're in an uncomfortable position. I know there's probably things that you do. There's probably things that I do to try to aid yourself in that you go from waiting, waiting, waiting to it's happening. And now I have to perform and execute a really good shot. Oh, like what's okay. your process through that from that stock portion to now I'm in range. Okay. So I guess, uh, positioning myself to make a good shot would have to do with where I'd position myself. And I guess, uh, you know, before I even get to where like the waiting part, picking where I want to approach that deer, like, I'm always going to try to come in from above, which there's three main reasons. Thermals are the biggest reason, but there's two other ones that I feel like are huge as well. And that's, you know, obviously I feel like most, you know, mature mule deer have a tendency that either bed facing downhill or to the side. Occasionally I'll see one that happens to be in a bed where he happens to be facing uphill, but that's pretty rare. Typically it's to the side or down. So that's another reason to come in from above. But another reason that I've put more and more emphasis on just a more, more of a priority for me just in the last, you know, probably five or six years, it wasn't something I used to even be aware of, but it's because of taking the shot. And this is something I've learned because I don't know, I've, I've shot three D's, you know, growing up, but it was never, like, I mean, I might shoot one 3D shoot growing up, like, every handful of years, you know, but over the last six or seven years, I start shooting to where now I'll shoot, you know, four or five, maybe six 3D shoots throughout the course of the year. And as I've started to do that more, I've started to learn that I struggle, like, with a 60-yard uphill shot is a completely different deal than a 60-yard downhill shot. You know, like, I shoot great on level ground and really great downhill, but uphill shots, like my pin float is just way more. So it's something I'm working on. I mean, now I've identified it. So in the summer, I'll go out on the BLM and set up targets and it's something I work on, but 
but it really doesn't matter like how much I work on. I can get better at it, but I'm, I'm never going to be better at shooting uphill as I am going to be downhill. And it kind of makes sense. I'm not fighting gravity as much. It's more of a pendulum. You know, I actually prefer shooting downhill than even level. Like I just, my pin sits really well. So that's a, that's another huge factor for me of why I like to try to come in from above. But yeah. And then getting to that position, I also, I've been using stocking moccasins for a lot of years. I, you know, I used to get like leather ones and I would like glue felt on the bottom just to make them a little bit quieter. Yeah. Um, but I started using these ones. Uh, I don't know if you, you've probably heard of them. They're, I think they're, they're pretty new. I think it's called Gulo Outdoors. Have you tried those ones yet? I haven't. Yeah. They're, they're probably not really any quieter than the other ones that I've adjusted. You know, I've just got leather ones and then glue that felt on there. These are, I think they're made out of wool, but they're like half the weight of the other ones. And it's like, to me, that's huge just because 99% of the time, they're just my backpack, you know? Yeah. And so being able to shave weight and still get them to where they're just as effective, you know, that's another thing that if I'm going on a high country mule deer hunt, I'm pretty much never going to leave the truck without a stock and moccasins. Do you, yeah. do you use those or you just go bare? You probably just go barefoot. I, yeah, I just go, I just kind of go barefoot wearing my socks. I generally like keep my sock on so I can tuck my uh, pant leg into them so they don't swish around or anything. And then just do that. I like being able to feel the ground. Uh, yeah. You know, there are at times where I have used stocking socks or moccasins or other things, but I just feel like I'm so much more quiet if I can feel the stick with my toes. So I just go yep. with that. Yep. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. Yeah, yeah. I'm actually kind of surprised you even wear socks. <laughs> yeah. There are some times where I take the socks off, though. It just depends. Like if it's because sometimes I hate walking around with stickers in my socks the rest of the day. Yeah. So I will take too. my shoes off. I just like to have my pant leg kind of tight up against there. So sometimes I'll twist my leg, pant leg up and try to get in there. I just don't want anything brushing or swishing. I don't yeah. know. That's the thing about mule deer. Their hearing is so good. You really have to take a quiet approach. And I, I mean, I, I would say probably high 90% of the deer that I've shot have been with shoes off. It, it's very yeah. hard to sneak in on a mule deer with yeah. your shoes on. And I see I people agree. all the time. They're like, I don't know what happened, man. Everything was right. Like, well, you were wearing a pair of stiff soled mountaineering boots and trying to get 30 yards from a deer with the best hearing in the West. So it's Absolutely. not really a surprise. Yep. I mean, they might be bedded with their eyes facing downhill, but they always got their ears cocked back, you know, and yeah, they, they don't let you get away with very much. Yeah. And I do agree with you. Like if I was to make a perfect, a textbook mule deer spot and stock is find a deer, bed him sneak in from above. That's the highest percentage stock you can get. Yep. Every once in a while, I will sneak in from below only because that's just my option with the wind generally. But I don't like it because you know you're coming into an approach that you can be seen. So that draw and shot might be seen. It's worked out for me a few times, but not ideal. And, yeah. and like you said too, it is, it is a lot more difficult to shoot uphill, just you're fighting gravity and yep. it's harder to, you know, when something can see you get, get set correctly. And, and it's harder to wait as well. Like you, you just run a lot of risks of getting seen, but I do it in those times where like, like you mentioned earlier, this is an area where there's other hunting pressure. What it's a numbers game and this is my opportunity to stock. It's probably not going to get any better. So I'll take advantage of the opportunity that I can. I don't think yeah. I would do it on if I, if there's a unit where I'm hunting a specific buck, I absolutely wouldn't take that approach. Yep. Yeah, I've actually never ever killed a buck from below. 
but I also don't try it very often, but I have got shot opportunities. I just missed, you know, like it's, but I, I still have, I know someday I'm sure I will kill a deer where the, the opportunity is just too perfect from below, but it still hasn't happened. But yeah. you, you mentioned earlier that you have a, uh, like a chart where you've tried to keep track of your mule deer that you've killed and try to figure out what's working. And I don't have a ton of information, but I do have a chart as well. And it, I was mostly curious with, distances and angles and what i've found is that on the deer that i've killed that my average shot distance is 57 yards which you know and that's an average you know of course i've been able to get closer and there's been you know times where i've i've taken them from longer distances but i do feel like that's usually that is usually about the distance where i'm like even if i felt like i could get closer I feel like it would be a mistake a lot of times on a mule deer um, yep. just because you know how it is. Like there's been times where I'm like, I know I could get 25 yards right there, but if I have to sit for an hour at 25 yards from a mature mule deer, I just feel like there's, it's just inevitable that something is six cents or whatever. Like I just don't like being that close for very long to a big buck. You know, I feel like that 50, 60 yard range is kind of that buffer zone where I feel comfortable with the shot distance, but I still have just enough room between me and the deer that I don't feel like they're just, they're for sure going to detect me for one reason or another. But I don't like that shot distance, to be honest with you, with uh, what I've experienced with string jump. I feel like it's a horrible, horrible distance um, to where they have enough time to hear that bow and the arrow coming that like, I would say, I've had less string jump with deer in the rut, but these early season deer, they're just so keyed up. Even when, when they take a shot and they're totally relaxed, have no idea you're there. I bet it's 90% of the bucks move significantly before the arrow gets there. So I've learned to like aim forward and low, like basically on the front, like bottom part of their heart where I'm like basically flirting with disaster. Yep. And if I aim there, I feel like most of the shots, and I and I know just because I have the video to go back and look frame by frame, but if I aim there, usually I'll end up hitting high and back of the lungs to where it's like barely clipping the the top back part of the lung because they'll duck and lunge, you know, and that's a significant amount of distance from where my arrow was, you know, was was headed. So I just feel like if I put it for a double lung, if I aim for a double lung shot, I'd either shoot over them and back or, you know, worst case, I'd hit them high and back, you know? Yeah. And you, that's, what have you experienced in that regard? Yeah, I think jumping the string is the number one reason that I don't get a deer, right? I think, like, if I, when I looked back, it's like, that's that's the reason. And I think mule deer are inclined to jump, and that yardage that you're talking about is the worst for me for having deer jump. I also aim low, but sometimes I think I shoot a pretty heavy arrow setup as well. So maybe I get, I get a little bit more drop in there than maybe potentially your setup. And that, that's probably a good reason for, I don't know. Do you know your total arrow weight off the top of your head? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, right now it's 450 grains. Okay. Which I always say I'm going to set up a bow for deer and a bow for elk. Yeah. But I'm just so anal that I never have time to like get two bows perfect. So usually what happens is I start the season out with that being my intention. And then I end up just being overwhelmed, getting one absolutely perfect. And then I just kind of hunt with that, you know, for everything. And then I kind of have like a halfway set up backup bow. But ideally if, if I did have 
the time to be able to set up two bows perfectly. I'd leave my 450 grain arrow that I'm hunting with now for elk, and I'd probably go with more like a 400 grain arrow for deer. And this is like, this is just my perspective right now. It might, my, yes. uh, my philosophy might be different now, but like I, I've went with the idea for several years. Like I'm going to, I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to crack the code. Like I'm going to figure out how not to let them hear my bow or arrow. So I went with heavy, heavy setups to where my bow, obviously the heavy arrow quiets the bow down tremendously. And I feel like just a slower arrow, there's, it's less violent, less turbulence through the air. It's a quiet setup, but they hear it coming just the same as they do sometimes worse. Like they're not even there when my arrow gets there. So I have, when I go frame by frame on the video, there's been plenty of times where I'm like, man, they didn't react until my arrow was pretty dang close to them. Like close enough that I thought if I shot a faster arrow, that maybe that arrow would have already been through that deer before it reacted. And I don't know if that's even possible at, you know, some like at that 50, 60 yard distance, but I am kind of trending in that direction to where I up my poundage last year. I was shooting, I was actually shooting 65 pounds for a lot of years because I just put accuracy above everything and I yes. still do, but I, I'm, I'm going for a little more speed. So I bumped up to the 75 pound modules on the Matthews. And, you know, so I, I've gained a little bit of speed there, but ideally for deer, I'd go with a little bit flatter, faster arrow than the 450 grain arrow I'm shooting now. What, what, yeah. What's your setup? Mine's pretty heavy. It's five, it's over 500 grains with the, the broad end and everything. Generally, this yep. is my standard setup and I shoot it at about 80 pounds, but I did notice. And then I switched to four veins and four fletching and then a two blade broadhead. And that I think had a lot more impact on them not jumping. Like actually increase when I increased my arrow weight by about, I think I, I upped it to about 50 grains. So right around 550. Uh, when I did that, I had a lot less jump and I think it just quieted the bow down more. And I think the arrow just flew a little bit quieter. Like you said, it's, it's not whistling as much like. I'd, I'd have somebody else shoot my bow and I'd go stand down, down range. And, oh yeah. Yeah. And, and it's amazing, like different broadheads and in that kind of thing, how much it changes. I looked at like my, uh, my average deep mule deer shot is 42 yards. So a little bit closer. And I think kind of like that 40 yard mark, I have a lot less problems with them jumping or if they do, you know, but that then you're also sitting within that strike zone extremely close and it's pretty nerve wracking. Yeah. So I don't know. I was looking, you know, the majority of the deer I've shot have been under 50 yards. There's a few over. And then there's that kind of that also thought too. I almost feel like it's better. I, I, do, I don't like that 60 yard range. I feel like that's the most jumping. I'd rather probably shoot 80 than 60 in some, no, I, it sounds I weird, but honestly, like I, it, it's like for some reason that 60 yard range is the worst for me. I, I agree. 40 and but, under or 65 and over. Yep. Yep. A hundred percent. But I, I've had them like this, the story from the beginning of the podcast, that uh, high and dry hunt where I got that textbook stock. That was, a, I ended up getting just because of the terrain. Like I had no choice. It was 32 yards. Like that's where I had to get to. I couldn't be farther and I couldn't get closer. It was 32 yards. And that deer had no idea. Like it was a perfect setup. He was in the shade. He just got, he'd got up, he was stretching and he had just spun his head around. Like he had been licking himself 
And as soon as he spun his head around, I shot. And it was the same thing where I had aimed. And I had a little bit of wind as well. So I was aiming like basically on a shoulder blade. And like I barely, I mean, like the deer went 100 yards, you know, like it was a perfect double lung shot. But it hit really high and back. Um, like and going frame by frame, I didn't know what happened in the field. I just assumed maybe it was wind drift or something. Yeah. But going frame by frame, like that deer reacted significantly just in the 32 yard uh, span. And so I've had, you know, an inside of 20, I don't think they can, but it's like, good luck. You know, like I, I've just had a hard time getting inside of 20 yards or even wanting to be there. But I, yes. but like you're saying, the shots I've taken at 70 yard range, I've experienced significant significantly less string jump to, to no string jump, which I don't like that fact. It's not like I want to, you know, stop at 70 because I think that's going to be the best one. But for sure, the, the video evidence that I have suggests for whatever reason, they don't react as uh, significantly or not uh, way less of the time at that distance. Yeah. Yeah. And honestly, too, I think it's very situational because I've had deer jump at, like you said, I, I was watching a video just kind of went frame by frame on one of the deer was 30 yards or maybe even less and completely ducked out of the way of the arrow faster than my eye could even perceive. And you go, wow, that's like, but the deer knew I was there. And so, you know, and then there's times where they don't know you're there and they react. And then there's those times I had this happen last year, not on a mule deer, but, um, I did that aim low and, the animal didn't react at all. And I was like, the guys that I was with, they're like, I was like, damn it. They're like, what happened? I was like, I shot it in the heart. And they're like, well, isn't that what you're going? And I was like, yeah, but I was expecting it to jump. Like I didn't want to hit it in the heart. I was aiming at the bottom of the heart, not for that. Like I hit him where I was aiming. That was the problem, but I was anticipating him jumping. Everything else had jumped. It had turned, it like did everything for anticipating the jump. And then they don't jump. And you know, sometimes I mean, that can actually be a very risky shot, uh, shooting because you'll clip a piece of it and it is actually not a great shot or, you know, depending on if they've just eaten bigger animals like elk will do this where they'll, they'll have grazed all night and all morning and their stomachs actually push their organs further up. You like, I've, I've had guided so many guys that have shot an elk. Like I I shot it in the heart and I'm like, you, you gut shot it. There's no way I gut shot it right behind the shoulder right there and i was like no that's that's actually gut depending on you know so there there is that factor too of where you go oh, absolutely and like most of the time but it can be yeah nerve-wracking absolutely like where where i aim on mule deer about 90 percent of the time is not where i'm hoping to hit like i'm aiming to where i'm just barely would be comfortable if if my arrow hit where I'm aiming, like yeah, it's, it's gonna kill it. But it's like I don't want it to hit there. I'm aiming there because I'm anticipating it somewhere else. But yeah, it's an awful feeling. I do not like aiming in their armpit. Yeah. You know, like I, I want to put that pin right, you know, there, right behind the shoulder, you know, like midway up, you know. But that's not where it's gonna hit most of the time. I feel like. Yeah, yeah. I think that that the fact the jumping factor though, you really have to anticipate and you have to pay attention to the deer's body language kind of pay attention to how far you are in your setup. And then, yeah, I always try to anticipate that because if you don't, you're going to be, you're either going to miss or you're going to hit them way too high. I think most mule deer that archery hunters don't, bow hunters don't get are hitting that area below the spine above the vitals. 
yep. like in that no zone. And it's because they duck and that's the kind of that right distance that you miss by when they react. Yep. You know, and another thing too, you were talking about, you know, reading their body language. It makes me think of another thing that I feel like is that I put a lot of uh, priority on and that's, which this will lead to reading their body language. But once I'm in position, say I've got right where I want to be, the deer's cooperated. He's still bedded in the same bed. Every I just need him to stand up. You know, obviously at that point I'm ranging. I'm just ranging everything. And a lot of times they're bedded in a, in a spot where I can't actually range their vitals. You know, like I might be able to see their head. Maybe it's just the tips of their antlers. Maybe, maybe I can't even get a range on their antlers, but he, even if I think I'm ranging their antlers, a lot of times I don't have enough faith that it's not going through and hitting something else. So I'll, I will like obsess and just range every single thing I can. I mean, I'll sit there and I might hit my the button on my range finder 150 times when I'm first getting there and I'm ranging the brush, rocks, limbs, and I'm trying to, you know, then I'm looking at the binoculars going, okay, is that limb in front of his antlers? Is it behind it? And I'm trying to do my very best to try to very accurately to within a yard, preferably of what that deer's distance is going to be when he stands up. Because in a perfect scenario, I do not want to have to range him when he stands up. Like when he stands up, I just want to, like I basically want to be at full draw. And that has to do with reading their body language. As you know, like you've hunted deer, you know, more than me have, I'm uh, more than I have, I'm sure, is that if a deer's bedded for a long time and you're watching him, like you can see when he's thinking about standing up most of the time, they'll start licking, they'll start stretching. They're going to start moving around. And I'm basically just trying, I'm getting ready, hand on release, you know, release is clipped on the string. And when he stands, if I feel like I can draw as he stands, I will. If I feel like it's too risky, I might wait for him to turn his head, but I don't want to have to waste any time, you know, clipping my release on the string after he stands or, or ranging him. But then again, I got to know the range because as you know, like a 450 grain arrow, a 500 grain arrow at 60 yards is dropping three inches for every yard that it travels. So if you're off by two yards, you could impact six inches low or six inches high. So like I do have to feel extremely confident. And if I don't, I will wait like until he stands to try to get a, get a range. But ideally I'll have a very good estimate of what he is draw as he stands or very quickly after he stands because I've just had it happen so many times where they'll get up and maybe they'll immediately turn and walk back to a different bed where their vitals are covered and they never present you with a shot or they'll get up and immediately start feeding away from you and then they might feed for a while and feed straight back in bed and again never offer you a shot so I just feel like I don't want to rush anything but I don't want to waste a single second you know it's like when they're up like I want to shoot as quickly as possible yeah I, i'm the same I, I would say most of the deer that i shoot once i'm waiting i'm waiting for that that classic head rock thing and that's where as he's going to stand up i'm often at full draw locked off by the time the moment that, that buck's knees are locked because if if i know that i'll have a shot then um yep. you know that that's the one thing that i i will do now if the buck got up and i don't have a shot i absolutely won't draw because I, I don't want to be standing there at full draw when that deer is now standing and can whip his head back and see me. So there is that game. But like the buck I killed last year, the only reason that I got that buck was because I sat there for an hour and ranged everything around. I had every stick memorized. And so what happened was the buck got up 
into a position where I couldn't shoot, but I was assuming that he would walk out and, and I needed to be at full draw when he stood up. So as he stood up, I'm at full draw, but he did that thing where he was going to go to the other side of the hill um, across the little goalie because that's where the shade was now. So he moved quickly left and you've probably seen it on where it's like they get up and they move fast. It's not like they're running away. It's just like, I, I want to go into this tree now. And uh, he did that. He dropped down. He popped up and I grunted enough to get him to just be like, what's going on? And I knew that he was 33 yards in shot and yep. buck was down. Uh, only because I'd ranged that same place where he was standing 400 times. The guy that was watching me for like in two hours was like, I didn't know what was going on. You're just constantly range. And I was like, yeah, I was just memorizing every bush around because when that deer stood up, I, I there's not going to be me trying to range. Like, I don't know how many times a guy's going to blow a hunt by the deer getting up and then not knowing the range and, and trying to range at the wrong time. Like that factor of that, I would say messes me up more than anything. I'd rather just be ready to rock and roll as soon as that deer gets up. Absolutely. Like I'll, like when I first get in position, I'm, I want to be ready because for all I know, he's going to stand up in 30 seconds. So usually what I'll do is I'll range enough things to try to get a, a real quick, accurate assessment of the, of the range of that deer. And then I'll dial my sight because usually on deer, I'm always going to use a slider sight and I might dial it to say 57 yards. And then if I have extra time, and the deer's just laying there, I might continue to range, 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 range. And if I'm like, you know what? I don't think he's 57. I think he might be closer to 58. You know, I'll go ahead and dial it to 58 because I do feel like at those longer distances, you know, particularly like, you know, if I, if I knew exact, if it was, if I had an exact range, it was 57 and a half, I'm going to dial for 57 and a half, you know, not 57, not 58. Like, you know, I want to be pinpoint because I am aiming so close to, disaster because i'm anticipating like if if i hit right where i'm aiming i want it to be exactly on you know like because yeah. if he doesn't move i don't have much margin for error oh that's those are great tips i think you know th- this has been a good conversation I, I that's one of the reasons i really enjoy talking with you is because we have very similar hunt styles in a lot of ways but it's also confirmation of like okay these are things that have worked for me that are successful these are some of the similar things that have worked for you that are successful and then you go, okay, these are really tried and true tactics to, to being consistently successful. So I appreciate you uh, taking the time to, to chat with us today because I think it's super valuable. And, and I always value your information and the things that you have to say because you're one of the guys out there that I really respect and know that you hunt in a way that I think involves a lot of, uh, take kind of takes that luck out of it and just replaces it with, skill and the the things that you've learned over the years and of course we all make mistakes we all mess up no stock goes perfect but i think that you definitely increase your chances of being successful when you pay attention to all these little things that you've been talking about today so thanks so much for uh coming on the podcast i really appreciate it and all right well thank you thanks again Remy. all right thanks nate Well, I really hope you guys enjoyed that podcast as much as I did. Nate's such a wealth of information. I really enjoy sitting down talking with him and being able to share that with you guys. I'm really excited because I've got an archery deer hunt coming up here in a couple weeks. And all these tactics are things that I'm going to be putting into play and hopefully tag a buck of my own. I'm really excited because I get to hunt an area that I've been wanting to hunt for a while and just haven't had a tag or opportunity to hunt it yet. So I've got a, a tag that I'm excited about. And now we just got to find a buck, put him to bed, sneak in and make a good shot. 
you know, as I get ready for the season, I've got a lot of my stuff laid out here. I'm just looking at all my gear on the floor, planning and prepping for this hunt. And one of the things that I think gets overlooked is the type of food and fuel that we take on these trips. As you guys know, Wilderness Athletes been a great partner of mine. I've been working with them and using their products since they're pretty much a company, since I met them in a trade show. I don't even know how many years ago. Started using their Hydrate and Recover and like just have fallen in love with all their products. One of the things that I think gets overlooked is their packout bars and packout bites. These are essentially a dense calorie fuel. So you're talking, I'm talking like, an energy bar, but their packout bar has 240 calories, 20 grams of protein, 11 grams of fat. It's extremely well balanced. This is designed by guys that grind in the mountains. And so it has all the things that we need, uh, a good balance of carbohydrates, uh, protein, all the stuff that really keeps you fueled on the mountain. And then the packout bites I really like because it's a smaller serving, but the way I use those, like the packout bars, I pretty much use as a meal replacement. I'll, I'll use those as a lunch on a backcountry trip or when I'm hunting really hard, just added boost of calories. The packout bites are a hundred calories, smaller serving, a uh, little bite. You can just eat, keep in your pocket. I always actually have a couple in my pocket in case I drop my pack, need some energy to get back. But as I'm going up, like if I'm going super hard, packing out, whatever, I just add these in. They're super dense in calories, bite-sized snack. They taste really good. That's kind of part of the key of if it doesn't taste good, you aren't going to eat it, and then you don't get the benefit of whatever you're taking. So I really like it. It's double chocolate brownie flavor, probably one of my favorites. And so these are just another thing to think about. If you haven't tried them, give them a try this season. I've been really enjoying them. This is something that I take on all my hunts. So give it a, give it a try. You guys can always, as always, use code LIVEWILD. You'll get 20% off at checkout. We also have some Wilderness Athlete Live Wild packages that are discounted as well. So you can find that on their website. Uh, as always, everyone, thank you guys so much for the support. Thank you for all the ratings, comments, likes on the podcast, sharing it with your friends. We're going to be diving into next month. I'm going elk month, and I want to do it essentially a month before the elk season. That way you have time to practice, to listen to the podcast, to really prep and prepare. So I think you guys are going to enjoy that. I'm going to be doing a live Q&A. Let's do it next Tuesday, 5 p.m. Pacific time. As always, check out my social media Instagram. Uh, find me at Remy Warren on Instagram. That day, I kind of tell you what one lucky caller will get as a prize. We'll we'll make sure that everything's on track if, in case there's any technical difficulties. So check that out. If you've got an elk hunting question, now's the time to ask it. We're going to be diving deep into elk hunting tips and tactics. And if you guys, hey, maybe you, you don't want to ask a question there, feel free to ask a question on social media, reach out anytime. If I don't get to your question on social media, you know, it's, it's stuff that fuels topics for the podcast so if there's something you want to know about that pertains to elk hunting this is the time to ask it because i'm we're going to dive real deep into it and i might even throw in a couple bonus episodes because i'm really excited about prepping you guys for elk season i know i get a lot of questions on that stuff over the course of the year and this is a good time to really focus in and just devote ourselves to thinking about good elk hunting tactics so i'm really looking forward to that thank you guys as always i'm going to sign off with a, another awkward goodbye. What, should, what do I even want to say this week? I'm just going to say stock those bucks. I don't know. That's, is that, there's got to be a, a cooler one that has like more rhythm, you know? 
I don't know. Somebody give me a, give me a good, send me a message with a good sign off. I'll catch you guys later. 